Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crew. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. The Sundance Film Festival is once again in full swing, which of course means that our intrepid Film Comment podcasters are working around the clock to report on the offerings on view at this year's showcase for independent cinema. Though we had hoped to be reporting live from the snow-covered streets of Park City, Utah, the 2022 Sundance Film Festival is all online, just like last year's. For the next two weeks, we'll be bringing you podcasts and dispatches covering the highs and lows of this year's virtual festivals, from correspondents far and wide. To stay up to date on all our Sundance 2022 coverage, keep your eyes on this space and subscribe to the Film Comment letter at filmcomment.com. Welcome back to the Film Comment Podcast's Sundance Spectacular series. It's ongoing, it never ends, and once you buy a ticket, you can't get off. That's the tagline that I've, that I've come up with right now. Um, we have two very special guests today. Alyssa, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Alyssa Wilkinson. I am film critic and senior culture reporter at Vox.com with a, with a V. Vox with a V. And we also have a longtime Film Comment podcast uh, fan and first-time guest. Oh, or did I get that backwards? No. <laughs> um, first-time guest? First. I'm kidding. Yeah, I don't know. Everything is blurring together. What is real? What is not real? After after all these movies, um, uh, my name's Violet Luca. I'm the web editor at Harper's Magazine, and I'm also a freelance film critic. And a and if for those who don't regularly listen to the Film Comment Podcast, the former host of the Film Comment Podcast and a regular guest on this show. And uh, Violet is going to be writing one of our soon-to-come Sundance dispatches, so you'll get a lot of Sundance reacts from her. But Violet, you mentioned that reality and fiction are blurring together as you've been plowing your way through the Sundance selections. And I feel like one movie that I watched recently that falls in this in this thematic and that a lot of people are talking about is Nanny. And I believe we've all seen it. And yes. I would love to hear one of you tell me what you thought of it. So I would just like to note that, as I as I said, there there are several films uh, in the festival that have this: is a woman seeing something, or is she not really seeing something? And within Nanny, which is about a Senegalese woman, Aisha, who's a nanny to this white couple, Amy and Adam, who live in this very nice apartment but can't seem to pay her ever. The film is very much a response to Usman Semben's Black Girl, which is also about a Senegalese woman going to work for a white family. But instead of the mask in Black Girl that's kind of at the center of the film or at the center of the response, Nanny uses photographs. Um, and it, I, th- I think it helps you to understand the film better if you know that what she's seeing is real. Um, Within the tradition of animism, and I think this is maybe something Leopold Senghor, who's like a very famous uh, uh, writer in the Negritude movement and the first president of Senegal, uh, wrote about how um, within animism, there's this notion that when you look at something, it looks back at you and how you look at it, uh, you know, impacts how it will look at you, right? So in Adam's study, the, the husband's study, uh, he's a photojournalist, and he has these very vivid, um, sort of like uh, painful kind of uh, uh, images of black suffering from around the world. And I think you could argue that these photographs, and one of the photographs actually comes to life at one moment, um, uh, that these photographs are kind of like poisoning Amy and Adam's relationship because, you know, the photographs are kind of like looking back at them with anger. And Aisha herself has photos of her son and videos of her son who still lives in Senegal and she's trying to get enough money to bring him over. Of course, that's difficult because Amy is like classic white, classic white feminism. Played by Michelle Monaghan, by the way, who I haven't seen on screen in forever. And she is 
All the performances are just so incredible in this film, but she was just this familiar face that I was so glad to see. No, she does a great job. It's like the terrible white lady. Um, so she's, she's, you know, she'll come home super late. She won't pay Aisha overtime. And she complains about like the boys club. And it's like, Aisha's just sort of like, what are you? She's like, and she, I think at one point Amy says something like, well, you know how it is. And it's like, I know how you are when you won't pay me. She says, you know how it is. Like, you, you're expected to go out on Friday night and get drinks with the boys and show them how you're just as tough as they are. And I and I, uh, Yusha looks back at her and is like, uh, just like, give me my money, please. <laughs> so I can... <laughs> <laughs> and one of the many great things about the film is that Aisha, she's not complacent. She's always politely but firmly asking for what she's owed. And then these forces start acting upon her from from that animus tradition that I was talking about. And one of them is uh, Mami Wata, which is this spirit, uh, because in animism there are spirits who are like intimately interested in human affairs and they sometimes meddle in them. And, and Mami Wata, who, who represents this dualism where she's associated with water, often carries a mirror, and it you know, she's she's a spirit that sometimes pulls someone underneath the water to keep them in the spirit world or, you know, make them not alive anymore. But for those people she releases or, you know, maybe it's something that can be put into words. They come back completely dry and they become wealthier and more knowledgeable and just just like a better version of themselves. And, you know, Mami Wata is also frequently, as I said before, uh, represented with a snake, which is like the sexual symbol, but also represents fidelity, uh, which comes into play in the film here, too. And I, I, and I think when she starts seeing Mami Wata or other things, that these images are very much grounded in animist traditions. So you should maybe not lump them in with the other films where similar things seem to happen. But the filmmaking is very much in keeping with genre with genre tropes. I mean, it's a horror movie and it's playing into that. The, the Is music. It a horror movie? Well, it plays it it plays with being a horror movie. There's a lot of shots of like dark hallways and drips of water and there's the there's the threat of jump scares. In fact, there are quite there actually are quite a few jump scares, I think. There's a lot of nightmare visions and like waking up in a cold sweat or like on the side of a swimming pool or a dock but i'm saying that's like real and but within the world of the you don't necessarily have to come to the movie with this knowledge either because you know within the the film there's also this character of uh this kind of wise older woman who who kind of clues her into maybe what's happening to her yeah um mm-hmm. yeah there is a that classic moment where there's like a painting of the mommy water of a mommy water-esque figure and the old lady just like recites the myth and I have to say, I enjoyed the film a lot, a lot more than I thought I would, because it did seem a little templatized. We were talking on the last podcast about how there does seem to be this like uh, post get out. I, and I feel like Master will fall falls more into that. This breaks free of that a little bit more. Because it's like, what are the because dis- Master, which we'll get to in a second. It's one of two uh, films about a black woman in academia. And one is in the main dramatic competition. The other one's in Midnight. And it's like, why was that choice made? There's a lot of that in this, <laughs> in this festival. <laughs> and even the PR email for Master, I believe, you know, says something like a Jordan Peele-ish or Jordan Peele-esque uh, yeah. horror movie. I have to assume you have to pitch it that way to get money to make it, right? So. Uh, definitely. I'm sure like the distributors yes. and studios are, you know, <laughs> this is like a, yes. they're ticking this box. But I, I think that because of that, I had some reservations about Nanny, fair or unfair. And I found it really surprisingly detailed, you know? I mean, I found it very surprisingly detailed in its evocation of character and in its evocation of the situation that Aisha finds herself in. I thought the performances were just outstanding across the board whether it's Aisha or the two uh, the people her employers or the guy she goes on a date with everyone is charming and those moments where Aisha actually talks back to Amy they really did take me by surprise because in these kinds of movies often the victimization of the maid character or this immigrant character is driven home by this sort of uh, scene of their, um, you know, a pitiful, pitiful scenes of them being cowed or them forced to be meek in the face of, you know, power. 
And when Amy flips out at her for feeding her daughter uh, spicy jollof rice, there's this moment when th- this actress, Anna Diop, you know, she turns around from the fridge and she throws like rotten lettuce on the table and she says, what was I supposed to t- feed your child? It, I, I was taken by complete surprise and I thought that that was a very good kind of characterization to have her be both desperate and genuinely a victim, but at the same time, like, know her rights. I mean, there's at one point she asks for pay that she's owed, and Adam says, I'll give you an advance. And when he said that, I shouted to the person I was watching with, I said, it's not an advance, that's what she's owed. And then she says, it isn't an advance, it's what I'm owed. She says that it doesn't have to be subtext for us. But I will say, Violet, in response to your point about animism i felt like this animistic backstory was really instrumentalized by the film into horror like signifiers in a thin way that i found disappointing like i really wish that either the film had just gone in the horror direction where it's giving us those jump scares without this extra exposition about myth or it had kind of really you know, allowed itself to sink into the texture of this myth. And I don't know if I got from the film what you were saying of, uh, you know, it feels real. It's not just um, these, it's not just these hallucinatory or these, you know, horror affectations that it's something that's part of this cultural universe. I didn't quite get that from the film. And so I felt a little let down by that. Right. I mean, I think, you know, it, Obviously, a writer-director is not the only person who makes a film. And I think that's probably, this could have been something that the producers kind of pushed on this vision. And yeah, I, 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 I mean, I found that, you know, while there are perhaps genre elements in here that might help sell, quote unquote, sell the film, there's definitely a real, you know, uh, the director has a real amazing visual sense. Like, these things are, you know... You, because again, it's like you don't necessarily know when something is acting upon you, when a force is acting upon you. The way it's shot, I thought, thought was really beautiful and surprising. And again, within within the realm of popular cinema, was as experimental as you could get without somebody being like, "Hey, we can't we can't sell this movie," which is sad. I agree, but you know. Thinking of it in that way is perhaps more rewarding than just thinking of it as like, it's this weird movie where stuff happens. <laughs> There's a weird challenge when you're trying to make horror or horror adjacent films or whatever that I think draw on like religious and spiritual traditions because I mean, <laughs> you don't you don't know who's watching. I've definitely seen films where it felt like either too little was being explained or too much was being explained or it was like the instrumentalization or fetishization of these things. Obviously, like, Catholics have gotten most of this, I think, um, over the history of of, uh, certainly American cinema. But um, I've seen a number of films in different traditions that kind of do that. And I've always felt slightly under-equipped to know, like, oh, is this thing that's being pulled out of a tradition I'm not familiar with being used in a way that would be recognized <laughs> um, by the practitioners. And and also does that, I mean, of course it matters, but also like as films go, you know, ha- where where's the line there? So I, I did really appreciate that I felt um, integrated into this film as I was watching it, like I kind of understood what was going on. I also... Um, thought that <laughs> one thing I really appreciated about it is, as you were saying, Violet, about this thing um, where things are looking at you. There's like not just the sense that the photograph is looking, the photographs are looking back, but also there's a moment where she opens the pantry and there's a nanny cam in there. And <laughs> it's so chilling. <laughs> it's like kind of the scariest thing that happens to her Um in the film and it's like oh right they want like they're literally wanting to watch her all the time um to sort of fit her into their box and i think the film does a really nice job of sort of showing the the terrors that would come along with just being stuck in that position um and like um Devika was saying the the great thing about aisha as written is she like refuses to be stuck <laughs> she <laughs> she's there um but she she has 
some idea of what she's doing there. And she's like already knows how they're looking at her and she's not scared to look back at them. And I, I think that's really powerful. That's such a good point, Alyssa. I think that's a, that's the thing that she, this movie isn't about her learning about racism or yeah. her learning about how she, she's seen by these people. It's so far beyond that. And it was pretty refreshing how little time the movie spends with Amy and Adam. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a good move. Yeah, you never really know what's kind of going on with them. You exactly. just know it's bad. It's just not <laughs> yeah. great. Yeah. And you don't and you don't bad ultimately vibes. care that much, which at yeah. first you're like, yeah, oh, it's oh, it's going to be about these this rich fan, these rich white people. But then it kind of just you become much more engaged in in Aisha's path. You know, everything we've talked about Nanny set aside those last 10 minutes though i mean i don't want to spoil them i thought i didn't i thought it was good uh, i didn't have the same problem you were like they ruined the movie for me you texted me and i was like Meh. i mean i agree i had a problem with the I ending did too. <laughs> yeah which is unfortunate because it was really building it was really building towards something and then it's like you could if you wanted to treat this material you could have done it in a longer way that would have benefited the material instead of yeah it does kind of yeah. yeah just sort of trail off and then so much happens at the very end and it kind of undoes way yeah, yeah way too much and it undoes a lot of the things that like i you know i really liked about the film and we don't have to go into that in detail especially because it would involve huge spoilers but i just i wanted to make sure i'm not crazy right like those 10 minutes just are such a wild swerve devica <laughs> Devika, what you're seeing is real. You're not imagining it. Okay. I don't know. I thought it was. I thought it was great. Yeah, I was feeling gaslit by Devika. Sorry, Clint. No, I didn't. I think. I think that that's. I think that's probably accurate. I did not understand why they'd never had enough money to pay her, or why they couldn't go to the ATM and get money. Because they know they have the upper hand. Because. She may or may not be a citizen yet. I I got the sense that it would that they really just were like, oh, we don't have two hundred and fifty dollars like liquid cash or, or like we can't get it. And I was like, seriously? They also never buy food. Yeah. Well, they're never around. I think there was some relationship issues that were you know affecting their ability to just like draw cash. I, <laughs> I like. I also thought that his char- the characterization of the of uh, Adam right is that his name. Yes, was was good, and he was this kind of like, I guess woke liberal type guy, globe trotting. Yeah, it's like a, trying to be a cool guy. Yeah, trying to be cool, trying to speak French. Like he's like a, he's got the sauce. He's ex vice guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and played subtly enough that there were moments where I found myself wondering if maybe he was a good guy. I right, mean, right. I, yep. I was like, almost fell for his con. You know, he's, he seems to like. <laughs> He's a good dad, but then he won't. He doesn't actually take responsibility for anything. He doesn't actually follow through on his promises to pay Aisha, and uh, obviously, he's also revealed to be something far more evil than anyone. No, I don't, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I don't want to give a, give bit. anything away. No spoilers. It's very predictable how he's I know. evil, but I yeah. go on. No, it's not even that. It's just totally boring. Uh, it's just I thought I thought the film was very. Well, well made. That's how I'd say. I agree. I'm, I'm excited. We haven't mentioned the name of the director yet, so right. I just want to do that. It's Nikyatu Jusu, and is this her debut I'm, feature? Yes, I believe so. Um, so one to watch out for, I would say. Okay, so Master Master is a straight up horror movie. Can can I say that, horror yes. experts? It's about the horrors of academia, a thing I have a lot of... Uh... And, the, and the horrors of racism. And this is one where somebody learns about racism. I mean, it was it was also kind of the horrors of uniform thought in, like, elite higher education systems. Like, I thought that, you know, it, it names... Like, uh, so, sorry. So, like, there's this black student, Jasmine, who seems to be the only black student in her freshman class at Ancaster College yeah. Ancaster College what could that be which is which prides itself on having rejected who FDR, FDR. and he had to go yeah. to a safety school that was Harvard that's the setup so I mean this reminded me a lot of the chair on Netflix which is not a good show but um, plays with some of the same themes about um, sort of thinking you've found your place 
um, you know, in the chair's case, it's Sandra Oh, and and in this one, um, uh, we have you know we have this freshman, and then we also have a um, the new first black woman to be a house master. You know, this is a at least a double entendre of a name played by Regina Regina Hall. Yes, played by Regina Hall, who is who is very good. I think she's always very good. And they both kind of encounter a series of things. The most notable is that there's this famous legend at this very old college that this woman named Margaret Millet was hanged like in the 1600s or something nearby for practicing witchcraft. I think I got that right. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're like it was like a Puritan village. Yeah, um, and she like her ghost haunts supposedly right this this uh house that um jasmine ends up living in and also the house that um, regina hall is master of and like bells ring randomly and um jasmine starts having really terrible dreams and there's maggots that keep appearing in gail's house in like strange places there's like a creepy stuff in her attic but at the same time there's also this ongoing discussion about a woman who appears to be the only other female black professor at this college who wants to get tenure. Um, There's some discussion in the department about whether she's done the work to actually get tenure. Um, Gail is supporting her. They're friends, but she has some misgivings as well. They're they're kind of friends. They're, they go running together. They hang out. Yeah. There was definitely some tense moments where you were just like, okay. Let's just say that I was not surprised by the big reveal, given the tension, the earlier tensions in the film. But she also gives Jasmine an F. Yes. On on a like otherwise on a seemingly like competent paper about racial dynamics in the Scarlet Letter, and the Scarlet Letter comes up a lot. I I you know I like everything about this movie except that there's just a lot of it. Like there's so much of it that I I started to lose threads throughout. Um, there's like there's a some terrib- weird community of like. There's a community of like old religious Puritan people. Who, like, oh, I'm sorry. I loved that. I just wanted more of them. See, this was so I kind of got to the end and was like, I wish this is what the six episode series had been because I actually think there's like a ton of interesting threads here that get glanced past too fast for me. I have to say, as someone who hasn't seen it, like I have still not been able to piece together what this like. It just sounds like there's so many threads. Okay, the the main thing is that Jasmine, the student, is like terrorized by the goat by the racist ghost of Margaret Millet. Who, or is she? Or, or is, is she? she? Yes. Yeah, or is she? Or 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 is it the the real racist all white student body? who are not very nice to her when they're not terrorizing her. And when they are nice to her, it's in a really icky way. Condescending and racist way. (laughs) And I also think it's important to note that Liv, who is the only other black professor you know, at the university, she has a very tense relationship with Jasmine, and not simply because she gives her a failing grade on this paper. There's just, like, from from the get-go. It's because, I mean... What I thought was so interesting about Liv's character is that, you know, she encourages these really disingenuous ideas about race and racism. And the people, you know, uh, uh, Jasmine's classmates, they're so ready to give them because, you know, and I mean, there's a part in the beginning where they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they're talking about Dalton, Dwight, Camp Chappaquiddick. Like these these girls all know each other from these elite institutions and they have this way of thinking and they clearly want to snipe at Jasmine for not thinking that way. And I think that's a really real thing. Everyone on the campus assumes that she's someone who pulled herself up by her bootstraps and she's from the inner city. And she's like, at one point she's like, look, I'm from a suburb of Tacoma. I was a valedictorian and class president. Like who do you like? I mean, again, I think, the strength of one of the strengths of the movie is that it doesn't say the subtext a lot of the time because you know these ideas that are there and kind of bearing down on Jasmine and bearing down on Gail too. But I, I mean, I was really, I don't know, I think, you know, Gail, oh, excuse me, Jasmine's story as, you know, like going to college, not finding her place, feeling, you know, like, rejected and not in a so in like a completely obvious way like that was really I think that emotional part was really strong yeah and there's a moment in the film where it kind of 
suddenly becomes um, a video that Ancaster College is producing to convince people that they're diverse. Um, and in this video... I think this comes after there's a burning cross on the quad. Yes, there's a burning cross. Previous to this, there's been like leave carved into a door with a noose left on it for Jasmine. Like there's a lot going on to prove that this is not not a welcoming campus. And But we know at this point that the people who appear in this video are like the two black professors and like the three students of color at the school. And this is so typical for the kinds of college admissions um, material that's often produced or, you know, in, in various ways. But I think it's 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 a really good encapsulation of kind of what the film is is about, um, at least in part, is this community that wants to say that this is a place for you and people discovering that actually it's it's anything but a place for them. Um, it's the it's the opposite of welcoming. And yet they they keep insisting it to you and you just feel like you're the crazy one, which is exactly what happened to the Puritans. Which <laughs> yes. Anyway, anyway, an aside, an aside. Well, it, it is it is so it is so located in like this creepy uh northeast northeastern like milieu and I They're like, near I just... Boston somewhere, near enough to Boston that they could drive there for the evening. I have to say it's kind of a genius premise. Just again, sight unseen, it sounds like just a very good premise, yeah. It is very much like a horror movie. Well, I mean, the big reveal, as you call it, I think that I actually really loved that. I mean, I thought it was, it really casts a lot of things in doubt that happened before. And like, it really complicates. But, the, but in just in the way that it's filmed, in the in the color scheme, the red, like deep reds and everything's in shadows and in the dark, there's even sort of like a Blair Witch scene where you see, you get this like point of view shot and like a person kind of like blurs in front of the camera. It's a very straight straight ahead horror movie there's just so much history in these like northeast colleges you know i it just sounds like the perfect setting for this kind of topical horror it totally is and that's why that's why i I did kind of wish that it leaned more into this like or you learned more about this sect of of long lost puritans (laughs) who wander in and out of scenes and like into graveyards yeah, they're always doing creepy shit. But no, I love that. And nobody freaks out when they see them. So at first I wrote down just like, oh, there's like an Amish community nearby or something. But it's something else. I I mean, I really felt watching this like everything in here I like and everything needs a little more breathing room. And if it got the breathing room, I think this is a really compelling story to me um i mean i just love creepy campus stories so that, that yes add a witch yeah. and like crazy <laughs> crazy stuff going on there's also scenes of people you know there's a lot of scenes in this one of is this real or not like people walking into rooms and seeing like a you know 16th century slave weeping in the corner i think and that like that sort of 16th century i don't know what century we're dealing with and there's this like emphasis on the scarlet letter that keeps coming up that i i wish had been given the time to spin out a little bit because there's some interesting ideas there so i guess what i'm saying is expand it into a six episode series and i am there for it. <laughs> that's you i kind of think that that is a really good prescription so if you're <laughs> listening producers maybe that this needs to be the film comment podcasts first original series yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would just I would just say quickly, I, I actually liked that it was very expeditious because, again, I do think I mean, I'm not so into like Netflix series. So and part of why that is, is just that they kind of they they sometimes drag things out for yes, a little too do. long. So I, I just like that this assume that you knew about the Scarlet Letter, that you're making these connections yourself. And it was just like and also just the the emotional, like, you know, conveying a lot of emotion with not very much Screen time, I thought, was great. Mm-hmm. So no edits from me. No notes from me. Yeah. <laughs> and this one leans into being a horror movie in a way that maybe Nanny yeah. did not and doesn't pull any punches in, in that regard. And right. Yeah, this is As things definite- draw to a close. This is definitely the one that at, when it ended, I, I turned to my husband who I was watching with and I was like, ah, 
this is the get out kind of influence for the reason that it was greenlit. Not that it's, you know, couldn't have been, I'm sure the idea was there long before that, but you definitely can see social horror (laughs) becoming. I had a way bigger problem with that with Fresh, where I was just like, this is just a mashup of like auditions, Squid Game and Get Out. (laughs) You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Speaking of the East Coast. Long Island is also on the East Coast. And let's talk about a movie set in Long Island. The Cathedral. Ricky D'Ambrose's The Cathedral. The Cathedral has the best production design of the period that I've ever seen in my entire life. You think it's very period accurate? Oh my goodness. I mean, I'm I'm maybe two years older than the, the main character and I felt like that I meme with Leonardo DiCaprio where he's pointing at the TV and screaming right, right. the whole time. Um, uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's these moments of little memories of things that he sees on TV or little games, things at his grandma's house. I'll describe the movie briefly before, you know, you both tell us about all your, all the memories it provoked for you. It's Ricky D'Ambrose's second feature. So his first feature was Notes on an Appearance, which someone on this podcast was in. Yeah, I think I think actually what the, my lines of dialogue are actually like notes I gave to his script. Like I remember there was an afternoon where I had to go to like Planned Parenthood and because uh, appointments there take like four hours. So I just read the whole script and then I was like, all right. Da, 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 da. <laughs> cool little glimpse into the making of notes at an appearance. Uh, but so this is a second feature. Of course, he's made many shorts that have screened, uh, you know, at various festivals. Um, and so the cathedral, I would say, is his most fully formed film yet. It really feels like his most ambitious work. Um, I hate to say it, but it does f- feel like the film where it's like this director has arrived. I I know that's like affixing this temporality that's maybe a little unfair, but I really got that feeling. So. It's autobiographical, really actually very autobiographical, I believe. And it charts the story of a child around Ricky's age, I imagine, uh, who's born in the 80s and sort of um, charts his upbringing in Long Island through his parents' marriage, their divorce, various familial rifts uh, through his grandmother's one of his grandmothers is treated really poorly by her family, his maternal grandmother. So through her sort of ordeals and um, just follows him through various stages of his life with time, the passage of time marked with, among other things, archival footage of things like um, 9-11, you know, the invasion of Iraq, uh, Hurricane Katrina's, you know, devastation, which I thought was... It did get old for me after a point. After a while, it felt a little too much, like overused shorthand, basically. But I thought that was really useful in taking a story that is very specific, like Clint and Alyssa both said. It really devotes itself to uh, evoking this time, this time period, but also this place and this milieu that uh, the character grew up in. The character is named Jesse, by the way. But at the same time, it is, I think, able to be broader and more universal. And even someone like me, different generation, completely different social and cultural upbringing, could, you know, find myself in this grand narrative because of these historical uh, markers that we all know. You know, the film is is constructed in that in this kind of minimalist, uh, I would say, object fetishist kind of style. It might remind some people of like Wes Anderson, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that as a comparison. But this this idea that objects can become metonyms for, you know, that you can just show like an object and it can represent much more than that. It can represent time. I would say Bressonian in almost. You know what? That is way better. <laughs> but isn't Bressonian a little heavy? <laughs> I was thinking of Terrence Davies. Yeah, I also thought about Terrence Davies. I also thought about Terrence Davies. The reason I thought of Wes Anderson is not because it makes sense, but because it's something that Wes Anderson doesn't always do well. You know, it's something that Wes Anderson can really 
it it sometimes works it doesn't and Ricky manages to make it work so well in the cathedral i was really kind of blown away by this really fetishistic approach to things and this metonymic uh, approach like i said and to shots each shot is yeah which never feels twee or cute and there's like this balance between minimalism and a lot of density because it's you know a lot of very carefully arranged objects but these objects are signaling something much larger and that balance is so beautifully struck in the film yeah i was i was really taken with it me too the title i assume is a reference to somewhere in kind of maybe the one third mark in the film jesse who's the protagonist sort of um is a kid and he's reading david mccauley's book cathedral which i again like screamed and was like i love that book because i had that book and i read it and i poured over it and the way things work right the the same guy wrote a series of books there's four of them and it's like city and castle and i don't remember something that doesn't begin with a c and then cathedral pyramid i think um and cathedral is like this kind of very technical uh, explanation for children <laughs> about as, as a story about how a cathedral is built over its 86-year period, and it's a specific cathedral. Um, they're really beautiful books from the 80s. Well, one thing that Macaulay does is he's super, super attentive to like the individual pieces that go into building this structure that then sort of stands as on its own as a thing. And so that like framed it for me because I... You know, a life is built kind of of these flashes and these memories. And there's a there's a point late in the movie where he's or yeah, where he's talking about a photograph that was taken of his two of his mother's sisters in his father's house before his parents split up and just sort of talking about what he sees and what he remembers. And like, you know, and it's the building blocks of I mean, wow, this is going to get really corny really fast. But it is like a life is is a building, is a cathedral in a sense. Right. I mean, I think that's what makes the film work, that sincerity, though. And Tevika, you were saying earlier, I think, about the larger historical events being kind of markers. I think that, I think, I read that as just part part and parcel of this kind of sincere attempt to actually recapitulate the building blocks of his life. And we often, like, as much as we don't want to admit it, like, I remember where I was when Princess Diana died, even though I didn't care about Princess Diana until that moment or know who, you know, and I remember watching it on TV, but I don't remember the day before that or the things that happened. And those shared moments, I think, can stand as like these pegs around which these more impressionistic scenes are arranged. So you have like Katrina and then around that you have his graduation from high school and uh, various other, and just kind of these more, larger events in his personal life sort of unfolding and i really enjoyed that performance by the uh actor who played his father it's brian darcy james right 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 yes yeah Yeah. Yeah. a great broadway actor and really the only performance in the movie because a lot of the other actors are just required are just asked to kind of stand aside and there's there's like a lot there's they have a very flat affect Things happen to them more. Yes. Yeah. And so the father, as you as the film progresses, you you begin to realize that you know the father figure looms large and larger and larger, and is the, like one of the more vivid and fully developed characters. That kind of that he can he's tr- he's clearly trying to get a grasp on this character. And for a film of such flat affect, it's so angry and tragic and moving. There's this bubbling uh, resentment underneath it. I think that we often feel when we look back on, you know, our families, take this long view and sort of start connecting the dots. And sometimes one thing can feel like the reason everything else fell apart, you know, Um, and like kind of tracing the fissures. And I, I, I could really, by the end, it had, it kind of very unassumingly builds up that emotion so that by the end you feel its wallop uh, very strongly and not in a not in a rancorous or bitter way but in a way that felt human and relatable that there is regret and there is some kind of rage but which is also softened by you know love for family and understanding that everyone um you know, was doing, you know, is often doing the best they can and are often, like, people grow through time, um, especially in the way that 
I think his grandmother is treated. Uh, there's even a really, really good clockwork orange homage in the scenes involving his grandmother, who's sort of treated really poorly by her son, um, so Jesse's uncle and his wife. So, you know, I mean, these playful moments, but underneath it, there's a very strong emotional current running through it that was quite remarkable. Yeah, and a lot of it hangs on this thing that is the very first thing we learn really about this family, which is that Jesse's uncle, like, dies from AIDS before he's born. But the official family story is that it was like a liver disease caused by unclean silverware. And his father has so internalized this that even though he knows what actually happened, like he definitely knows, he still spends Jesse's whole life warning him to like clean off the silverware at a restaurant before he eats and not to eat raw meat or anything like that. Um, And that's just such what a family is. And those are the things that are so deeply embedded in your head that you you become an adult before you realize, oh, that was a story my family told. That wasn't actually what had happened. And I just found that to be really strong. Yeah. I mean, what was most impressive for me was less the content here than the form. And uh, the no comparisons sprung to mind, I guess, is the way that other than like, you know, Bressonian, but it's not as heavy as that as as that sounds. And I don't think it's as light as Wes Anderson. And I don't think it's doing even trying to do anything like either of those filmmakers are trying to do. I just wanted to underline that this is kind of a unique movie in that way. It's not simply it's I wouldn't go in expecting just a family drama. I do think of all the comparisons being cited, Terrence Davies, I think Alyssa, you win. Because now that I think about it, that is a perfect and a little bit of the souvenir too. Yeah, maybe a little bit of the souvenir too. Yeah, that oh, Terrence yeah, Davies is yeah. a good one, good. especially the those party scenes, the family party scenes. So let's venture from out of the cathedral into the uh, tundra. No, into, into into the Eastern Orthodox cathedral. or into the into the headlines, <laughs> into the straight onto the New York Times headlines. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yes, with yes. Klondike, a a film of Ukrainian origin, if I'm not mistaken, and a film that I have not seen, so I'm going to have to defer to you, Violet. Yeah, so this is about uh, Dantesk, and the which is part of the Eastern Ukraine, and that is where there are. Um, Right at the moment, um, actually, this has been going on for a long time. The whole area has been is being controlled by um, militants, like basically like fascist militants, or many of them are fascists, who don't wear military fatigue, so you can't tell who they are, but they do demonstrations and stuff like that. And this is about um, a husband and wife who the husband may or may or may not be uh, participating in the separatist movement, which in this context means joining up with Russia. And that's sort of where the, I don't know, read the papers. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it's about this husband and wife. Uh, The wife is pregnant um, and it's just sort of about them. Like there's this incredible opening shot of them just in their house. And then there's this giant bomb that explodes next to their house, almost killing them and it just completely destroys this whole wall of their house like there's a giant gaping hole in the house and the camera does this beautiful sort of you know they sort of fall down when they hear the blast you know take a safety position and the camera just sort of pans the 360 pan around uh so you know their home and then it reveals this giant hole and there's this beautiful shot of the dawn and it's uh, I think that really sets a tone for the film. Um, and there's also, so the husband is participating in separatist movements, or although he isn't even sure what his faction is doing a lot of the time. Uh, and then uh, uh, there's a there's the wife's brother who is very opposed to separatism, and it's like we're Ukrainian. And there's sort of the big event of the film. If the human drama was not enough for you, the big event of the film is that uh, there's this this passenger plane gets shot down, and the there's this constant stream of like f- so everyone in the plane dies, and so there's this constant stream of foreigners coming in trying to find their dead, trying to you know sort of memorializing their families, um, and the the couple can't get out; they can't move as freely as the foreigners, and it's it's this very 
I mean, it's just a really beautiful movie, like formally. Um, and I also think rather blessedly, it doesn't take a political stance. Um, I'm not saying it's totally apolitical, but it's not sort of like beating you over the head with what it thinks is the right answer. Which is probably very refreshing at Sundance. My head is feeling yes. very deep. <laughs> I, I love... I love movies where world events are swirling around people, but they also just like have to go on with their normal lives um, and like do like feed the chickens and stuff. And that's so much of what is going on in this movie for like a great deal of it is like she's she's hugely pregnant. She's about to have a baby at like any moment. Um, she's really pissed at her husband because the car is gone and he can't seem to like... Yeah, because the militants keep using his car because he has like a kind of a big van and she's just like, what the fuck? When is the car coming back? Yeah, like, you know, and like she's super pregnant and they might yeah. need the car. Um, but also like she has to feed the... She has to feed the chickens. She's like really frustrated that there's this giant hole in their house. Um, he like wants to have sex. She's like, we don't have, we don't have walls. Like, go away. Um, so it's and then he responds by being like, "What? I'm supposed to fix it now?" And then he just like goes out, and starts throwing like bricks around. It's, it's... like they're yeah, it's it's funny and kind of. I, I mean, I, I that was what attracted me to it as well, mm -hmm. Alyssa. That this is you know. People just trying to get by, yeah. just trying to live their life. And it's it's a totally different vision of a war zone yes. than this really overwrought, like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? It's just, this is life for these people. And it's been this way for a long time. And you can, you know that by reading the newspapers, you also know it by how nonplussed they are. They're just used to it. Yes. Yeah. And you, you know, they'll be outside or outside the house or something and then in the distance, you can see like military vehicles or like men like walk, you know, running around. Like you're seeing all that stuff in the in the background, but in the foreground, it's still. I mean, they certainly have things having to do with what's going on that they're dealing with, but at the same time, they're just sort of <laughs> frustrated with what's going on, and they've got to like kill the cow, and it's like, ugh, you know. It reminds me of the head. I did see a headline that was like. Ukrainian government, like, not too worried about Russia, as, like, everybody else, like, yeah. as everybody else says, like, Russia's coming. Yeah, exactly. And and it definitely has that feeling of, like, well, this is bad, but also, like, we need milk, so. Just to reiterate just how beautifully shot this is, and again, in this place that is really devastated, gets blown up, um, you know, the horror of having a passenger plane be destroyed by who knows who did it, um, which is like I think a really smart move. That it's 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 a it's a really unique, it's a refreshing thing, and I and I hope um, what you get what you gather from these uh, uh, characters is something more universal and not necessarily like it's a reflection of what is happening or has been happening in the East Ukraine, but it's also it's it's more than that, and I think the the dedication at the end makes that very clear. Well, that sounds like a good one. What is, what's the dedication? It says, it says to all women. And I mean, this last shot is like very, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it feels like having your lip pulled over your, <laughs> what is it saying? I forget. My brain is mush after all these movies. <laughs> well, speaking of dedications, we are uh, at the end of our time, so but do want to take some minutes, a few minutes to do some shout outs, just because I feel like we're all seeing a lot of movies. We can only get to, you know, so many in these podcasts. So if there's anything that you really liked that you want to uh, name, um, speak now or you shall... What is what is forever it hold your peace? Forever. There you go. Forever <laughs> hold your peace. Well, I I just checked. I have, as of this recording, I am forty seven movies into the festival oh and a couple God. shorts, but forty seven. <laughs> you movies. started watching before. I did. I started watching. I just checked. I started watching on. I believe the like the ninth of. Uh, of January, That's still so. not that. I mean, it's still pretty impressive. Forty-seven is impressive. Yeah, I'm saying Alyssa is metal as fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, she's serious. She takes this 
Seriously, yeah. I also saving myself a lot of time down the line, and that's you know that's always a good thing. But yes, um, in any case, one of the so two of the earliest movies I saw are two of my favorites. So I just want to shout them out. One is Sirens. Speaking of metal as fuck. Speaking, <laughs> yes, <laughs> Sirens is a really incredible nonfiction film about the only all girl metal band in Lebanon. And it is another one of those movies where there's a lot going on in the background. There's a lot of um, stuff going on in Beirut. But it's also really just about the relationship between the two kind of main girls in the band who kind of do all the writing together. Um, it's really, really good. I don't, really, I don't even want to like spoil it for people. I just think it's it's an incredibly strong film and very well worth watching. And then the other one is We Met in Virtual Reality, which I 100% when I got the link was like, well, got to watch this VR <laughs> doc. Like this is going to be gimmicky. It's so good. <laughs> um, it's all shot on a platform called VR Chat, which is kind of an open world. Um, I talked to the director, Joe Hunting, who is British. And because I was like, how did you do this because it about halfway through we we looked at each other and we were like this looks like a real movie like there are like racking of focus and like wide shots and and, uh, he said actually someone in world has built a camera that like basically just looks like the camera he uses in real life um, with all the same adjustments that you would make and so he said I'm just like in the world carrying around a camera shooting like I would if I were on the street so it's like a full body VR platform, or at least he uses a full body. And so he's got like a, yeah, he like adjusts the aperture and everything in the world. So that's really cool. Um, but it's also just a really, uh, it's actually like a very emotional film about about connection, which is a phrase I just hate saying out loud because I feel like everyone's saying that's what all movies are about right now. But it is actually genuinely about that. And I went from a complete skeptic to being like, oh, I kind of get it now. Um, and it's really not about VR proper. It's about these people who he met in this VR world. So I would definitely recommend it. It was a delight. Um, it starts out a little chaotic and you might be like, oh, no, what's happening? But then you kind of get into it and it it really worked for me. Yeah, that sounds great. Cool. To catch it. And then I guess my recommendation Um this is hard because I actually I found myself really liking several things, um, which is always a good good problem to have. I guess one that really stood out to me is The Cow Who Sang a Song into the Future. Um, this is a Chilean film, um, and it's it's a magical realist, uh, and it's about this I'll say um, non-indigenous family living in this part of uh, Chile where they're. It's it's kind of rural, and they own a dairy farm, and um, the mother who died many years ago from a, from suicide, where she tied her feet to a motorcycle and just drove into the river. Uh, there's some environmental pollution that brings her back to life, and so she goes back, and she's sort of like, you know, and she has kind of powers a little bit, like we're, we're like kind of funny, like she doesn't understand, like you know, she doesn't know what cell phones are, but she she has this control over cell phones. Um, and she, she eventually meets up with her family and she has this really beautiful, uh, interaction with her granddaughter who is constantly being misgendered by her own mother. Um, and so it's like this beautiful thing where it kind of like you skip a generation and you find out who you really are. And I don't know. It's also the, it's very funny. Costumes are great. Uh, lots of, I mean, I think it's a way to make a film about environmental issues that is still a human story. It's not like science, science, science. This is like a very human and also natural thing to do. That sounds great. I was, I was actually planning on watching that tonight, I think. I will shout out uh, Emily the Criminal, which is an extremely lean, stripped down thriller that I found to be very effective, starring Aubrey Plaza of Parks and Recreation fame. And various other things at this point, but in my mind, I guess still there. And it's it's about like uh, she plays a a young-ish woman, sort of aging into a period of her life where things are where she's kind of wondering what's what's next. And it's made clear that she has a lot of student debt, which is one aspect of the film that is sort of <laughs> relatable. Uh, yeah, relatable. <laughs> and. 
so she like she's working as a caterer. She's also this. I think somebody earlier had said something about movies. Uh, one thematic was that uh, women who experience at art school didn't pan out, right? That's and this is one of those movies. And uh, didn't you know things aren't panning out for her as an artist? So she starts. Uh, she's working as a caterer. She gets hooked up in some sort of like illegal credit card fraud scheme where she's like it's called dummy shopping i think and she just gets deeper and deeper into this world of criminality and i thought it was it was fun and and really pokey sharp <laughs> felt like i was being like poked in the eye by a movie that's a good sell, I guess. Um, no, as I, I just was like, it's very stripped down and just like, and doesn't stop. And you just, she just goes right into this world, and you're kind of pulled along with her. And I liked it. It was, it was a lot of fun. These all sound great. Um, I want to just shout out a couple shorts. I often end up neglecting the shorts, and I'm trying not to do that this year, though I haven't made it too far yet. But two that I want to mention that I think people are already talking about, one of them is Sky Hopinka's new film. Sky is a great filmmaker and uh, has made some really good work in the past couple of years, including his first feature, Malni. So I was, you know, interested in seeing uh, this new short. And it's very much in keeping with his recent work in the sense that it's experimental and more than experimental, really evocative. And, uh, and it's combining voice and images and text in sort of very spectral ways that draw on memory and, you know, that draw on um, themes of ancestry and colonialism, but in this oblique, very embodied and textured way. And this particular short uh, features two audio recordings, one uh, between his grandmother and great-grandmother about their language. Uh, I think it's the Pechanga language um, of the Luiseno people. And they're kind of, I think the great-grandmother is teaching the grandmother some words. So there's this audio recording, and then there's a conversation between Sky and his mother, reflecting on that uh, other recording, and then reflecting on just their experiences, intergenerational experiences of growing up and his mother's uh, memories of her mother and how, um, you know, various other familial kind of threads come up. It's very short. It's 15 minutes, but it actually feels so expansive and uh, just so rich with detail and so rich with feeling. And the footage is from where Sky's family is based, which is Whatcom Country in Washington. And it's not always you know, clear what the relationship between the images and the voiceover is. And I'm always very amazed when that works. You know, when yet like you can't tell why these images and sounds are paired together and yet it works. It doesn't feel arbitrary. There's just something very intuitive about it that hints to things you can't see and articulate, but that makes sense. So I really recommend that. And then the other short I really enjoyed is Stranger Than Rotterdam by Noah and Louis Kloster, who are these young uh, brothers. Uh, fun fact, I used, uh, Louis used to work at Film Society, so I worked with him. I know. <laughs> so I guess there's a film common connection. And it's it's honestly just such a fun and... Fun and very, I don't, I don't want to say cute in a pejorative way, but it just is very adorable. And um, it, it's the story of how Sarah Driver smuggled a copy of Robert Frank's Cocksucker Blues to the Rotterdam Film Festival um, in exchange for being able to, like, be getting a funded trip to the festival where she planned to fundraise for Jim Jarmusch's feature-length version of Stranger Than Paradise, and the festival was screening the 45-minute uh, initial version. And, you know, she narrates the story, and it's all, like, these uh, cut-out, paper cut-out puppets play the characters, including Sarah and Jim. And it's... There's some great visual gags. It's, uh, you know, and the combination of those gags with Sarah's voiceover. And she's she narrates so casually. It's as if she just called, like they called her on the phone and she just told them the story and then they used it as the voiceover. You know, there's something very casual about it. Um, and I think what really 
stayed with me and I'm not saying anything super original here but it's you know all this unseen work of producers especially producers who are spouses which is kind of a thing you know um I I brought to my mind I I spoke to Haile Gerima recently and his wife is also his producer and she also makes her own films and in talking to them I realized like how she did all of this you know getting the money going to festivals coming up with crazy workarounds risking the law and you really get a portrait of like you know Sarah's role in in really all of Jim Jarmusch's success because this was such a seminal moment in his career and I think it's a that's what really is has stayed with me so both films short and sweet if you just have 30 minutes I recommend you check them out with that uh we say goodbye and until we meet again on the next Sundance episode of the Film Comment Podcast, thank you, Alyssa, and thank you, Violet, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And uh, happy watching. Absolutely. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.